This, this is going to be a difficult text for some of us to receive. We teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through books of the Bible at this church. So sometimes we hit passages that are like, that's not that fun to talk about. Uh, and I happen to be the one talking about it today. So though it is not easy, all of God's word is good, Right? And like Brian said a couple weeks ago, the Bible is not intended to make our lives easy. It's intended to make our lives eternal. So we're going to read uh, Ephesians 5, 3 through 7, but we're only teaching on six, verses 6 and 7 today. The title of the sermon is Bad Company. Start in Ephesians 5, verse 3, just to get some context. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. And here's our verses for today. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. You ever seen uh, you ever seen these people who look like they're pets? Can I just show you guys a couple pictures? Okay. <laughs> That's cute, right? Okay, this next one. <laughs> okay, this one's my favorite. The next one's my favorite. <laughs> It's just how it is. The, the people, or in this case, the pets that you spend the most time with, are eventually who you end up looking like. We make fun of my wife often and her best friend how the older they get, the more they are morphing into the same human being. Studies, in fact, have shown, jokes aside, that uh, you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. For some of us, that's Really good news for some of us. That's terrible news. <laughs> According to research by Harvard's social psychologist, Dr. David McClelland, the people you habitually associate with determine as much as 95% of your success or failure in life. King Solomon said it like this regarding people who are uh, hot-tempered. He said, do not make friends with a hot-tempered person Do not associate with one easily angered. Why? This is what will happen. Or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. Referring to this passage Paul wrote later in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. The people we spend the most time with will ultimately determine who we become. And that's really what our passage is talking about today. The words and actions of others can and will influence the way that we think if we're not careful, which means then that, as Paul um, alludes to, we have a responsibility in this. Now, we talked about this a a bit last week in the sense that what comes out has crazy power to influence people for the better or for the worse. But today, it's like what comes in also has crazy power to influence our lives for the better or for the worse. The reality is this. You will be influenced. I will be influenced but it's us to, up to us to determine who we are being influenced by. 
And so Paul's warning and exhortation is, do not be influenced by the people who live impure and immoral lives. They are idolaters and will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Let's read just our verse now again, but I'm going to read it from the New American Standard this time. Gives a little bit of a different translation, a little more clarity. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Let's first be clear who, who Paul is talking about, who the Bible is talking about here. This is not talking about the person, first of all, who uh, has an occasional act of disobedience. This is talking about the person whose life is characterized by disobedience. This is the person who doesn't submit to God's authority, but prefers to rule their own life and go their own way. Those people are the sons and daughters of disobedience. These are the people who, as our passage says, are under the wrath of God. Do not be deceived by these people's empty words and do not partake with them in what they are doing. Do not be deceived by their empty words, he starts off by saying. So here's how it works. Uh, We all know this. The person who is in sin will always find a way to excuse their actions, right? And they will do it with empty words. The phrase means words that are not entirely true or not founded in truth. It's our, it's our nature to try to justify what we are doing. Even just to keep us sane, we will figure out a way to excuse away our actions and convince ourselves it's not that bad. Like, I, it's, not, it's, it's not sin that I'm having sex with my boyfriend. I, I love him. He loves me. I'm not, I'm not addicted to alcohol. I just, it's an essential part of how I cope with the stress of life. I'm not gossiping. This is my favorite one. I'm not gossiping. I'm just concerned. We will try to convince ourselves, and when we convince ourselves of, of this, our hearts become callous in some way to our sinful actions. And so naturally, then, when we speak about these things, People ask about it, or we just talk about it in general. There are two ways that we generally cover it up. One, we become super legalistic. People generally who have a lifestyle of hidden sin that other people can't see, maybe like a a private porn addict. Sometimes they will be very, very legalistic to overcompensate for what's happening in their own life. But the other way that we cover it up is what Paul says. We brush it off with empty words. We justify it away. And that is the deception of verse 6 that he speaks of. He says, do not be deceived by empty words. When I buy into the lie of you justifying your life of sin, then I myself have been deceived. I love how the New Living Translation um, translated, which is what we read at the beginning. He says, don't be fooled. You're being a fool when you're being deceived. Don't be fooled by these people's empty words. There's There's this like urgency in it. Like, hey, wake up. You're being duped. And, verse 7, don't participate in what they do. So don't be deceived by what they say, and don't participate in what they do. Don't be influenced to believe what they're saying, because what they're speaking is empty words, and don't participate in what they're doing. Don't believe, don't participate. Don't believe, don't Participate. Listen, belief 
precedes participation. What we believe will dictate how we live, how we act. It starts in the mind where we believe, right? That's why it's like, let your minds be transformed by the renewing, right? The renewing of your mind. That's what God's word does. That's what his spirit does. And as our minds are changed, our belief systems are changed, then it's, it translates into how we live. That's how It starts in the mind. It starts in this case with our ears. It starts with what we take in, even unintentionally. Our association with sinners is always, always has a progression to it. Psalm 1 breaks it down like this. Check out this progression. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. First, you're walking. You're not just walking with the ungodly. You're walking in the counsel of the ungodly. You want to know why? Because when you start walking with someone, you start talking. Right? When you start living with someone, you start talking. But here's the thing. Okay about walking. At least you have some momentum. And when you have momentum, at least if you need to get out of there, it's like, whew, I can go. But when you keep walking, what does it eventually lead to? Standing. No more momentum. You are standing in the path of sinners. And once you're standing, it's not long before you are sitting. Walking, standing, sitting in the seat of the scornful. In the seat. Not just next to in the seat of the scornful, which means that you have now taken on their beliefs. You have now taken on the way that they think. You are sitting in their seat. You have bought into their justifications. You are becoming like them. It's like the proverbial um, frog in hot water. You know how to kill a frog in case you ever need to, right? You, uh, I mean, you could probably just smash it or whatever, but you, if you want to do it slowly, you put it in like some simmering or lukewarm water and you just turn it up to simmer. You don't boil it, the thing will pop out. It'll jump out. It gets like, this is hot, I'm out. You put it into you know, lukewarm water and then you slowly start to turn up the heat. Pretty soon, no more frog. Usually we don't even know what's happening until it's too late because it's happening so slowly and progressively. Pretty soon my wife is looking just like her friend and her friend's looking just like my wife. Pretty soon you're talking about other people in a way that you used to define as gossip and slander and would have never tolerated. Pretty soon you are having a relationship with a substance or with a person or with a social media platform that you would have never tolerated before. You're suddenly okay with something you weren't previously. What happened? You were the frog in hot water. Given enough exposure to one thing, it can have the power to change the way that we think and therefore act. You think I always wore high tops? I stopped wearing high tops in 1994. 16 years later, I remember, 2010, I saw a dude wearing high tops and I was like, what is happening? And I remember thinking, hey, dude, you're 16 years out of style, bro. But I could tell that he was, like, fashion conscious. So I was like, what? What is, is this? Because you know how stuff kind of comes back around. I was like, no. And I thought it was stupid. I thought it was silly. I for sure didn't think it was cool. <laughs> what happened? After I spent enough time for, like, a year around people who were rocking high tops, the way I thought about the subject changed. The way I thought about the subject 
change. This is what the words and actions of the people around us have the power to do. Now listen, usually when we read a passage like our passage today, um, it's like don't partake with those people, don't listen to what they're doing, they're idolaters, they're impure, sexually immoral. Here's what we think. We think, ah, that's people out there. Mm Mm-hmm. That's the people out there. They don't know Jesus. Certainly, they must be the sons and daughters of disobedience. Certainly, they must be the ones under the wrath of God that Paul is talking about here. I need not listen to what they say. I need not participate in what they do. And so we guard against such people. Shoot, some of you won't even listen to non-Christian music or eat at restaurants where they brew beer. We are distancing ourselves. And in an effort to not be influenced by the world, some of us have all but isolated ourselves from it. It's an attempt to protect ourselves from what we might call the carnal culture of the world. Here's my question, though. What about the carnal culture of the church? The words and actions of the people around us can change the way we think and live, but the most dangerous ones are the ones that come from within the body, not from outside the body. This passage here in Ephesians 5 is not talking about us being negatively influenced by people out there, although that's certainly possible. This passage is talking about us being negatively influenced by people in here. The warning is not that there are non-believers who are bad company. The warning is that there are people who call themselves Christians who are the worst bad company of them all. Jesus called people like this wolves in sheep's clothing when he said it in Matthew 7. He says, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them. Thank you, Jesus. He tells us how to identify them, right? Because most of us are like... But I don't, I mean, they say they're a kid. They look like a sheep, kind of like, I don't know. How am I supposed to know? Thank you, Jesus. You can identify them by their fruit. It's very simple. That is by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. It is the company of non-believers that we need to be not that we, need to, that we not need to be most on guard with. It's not the company of non-believers that we need to be most on guard with. Let me say it like that. It's the company of the person who says they're a Christian, person who says they're a fig tree, but all they bear is thorns. This is not saying that we shouldn't insert ourselves into the culture of the world. This is saying that we shouldn't insert ourselves into the worldly culture of the church. Let me explain. We are actually commanded in Scripture to insert ourselves into the world. Jesus said, go therefore into the world. Jesus said to his followers, you are the light of the world. Thank you, Hugh. Not the light of the church. He didn't say you're the light of the church. Go let your light shine inside the church and with all church people. He said you're the light of the world. The church already has light in it. The world full of darkness. He said, you're the light of the world. That means every time we do a good deed, he says right there, in the name of Jesus, it actually lets the light of Jesus shine into the darkness of the world. So with the world, we actually press in to relationship. 
We are actually intentional about creating connection with people who are not Christians. We are actually intentional about doing life with these people, about doing life with the person who doesn't know Jesus, about eating meals with the person who doesn't know Jesus, about loving on intentionally the person who doesn't know Jesus. We are intentional about exposing and explaining Jesus in what we do and what we say with people outside of the church. That's being on mission. But with the people who are in the church or the people who say they are Christians but bear bad fruit, we are actually to avoid relationship with them. We are not to create connection. We are to be intentional about creating distance with these people. We do not spend time with them. We don't eat with them. We erase their phone numbers from our phones. We do not try to love on them. Again, I'm not talking about the person who's struggling with sin and falls and gets back up, falls. And gets, that's all of us. I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about the person in the church whose life has been an ongoing pattern of disobedience and or destruction. Judge the fruit. How do I know? I don't know. Look at the wake of their life that they have left behind them. You know how boats leave a wake behind them? All of us leave a wake. All of us leave a wake. What is the wake of their life? Is the wake of their life broken relationships and broken trust? Is the wake of their life division? Is the wake of their life a compromise? Is the wake of their life people falling away from Jesus? Or is the wake of their life unity? And is the wake of their life what they leave behind them? Love and freedom and grace and truth. And people not falling away from Jesus, but in their wake, people coming to Jesus and people's affections being stirred up for Jesus. If that's not the wake of their life, then the fruit of their life has already condemned them. Don't associate with these people. Do not listen to their words and do not partake in what they are saying or doing. Paul says this about people like this in Romans 16. So gnarly, man, but this is the word. It says, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. Turn away from them. For such people are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He says, turn away from such people. And in fact, he says in our passage today, you shouldn't even be listening to what they're saying. That's what he means when he says, do not be deceived, be deceived by their empty words. Don't even listen to what they have to say. Because if they can get to your mind, which is where the words go, then they can get to your heart. And if they can get to your heart, then they can get to your entire life. It's the way that poison works. Have you ever noticed uh, how Jesus has the harshest words, not for sinners in the world, but for the religious leaders? I mean, think about John 8 when he sees the woman caught in adultery. His words are actually very full of compassion and empowerment for this woman to leave her sin and pursue after the things of God. 
I think about even in John chapter 6 where Jesus had just fed these 5,000 people and then they follow him across the Sea of Galilee and they find him and Jesus uh, doesn't rebuke them. Here's, they show up because they're hungry. They want more free food. They're selfish and self-seeking, honestly. They're entitled. They're like, hey, he did it once. Of course we should get it again. And they're greedy. But Jesus doesn't actually rebuke them. He exposes their heart but then he, uh, he actually offers them a better, better way. It was actually a very loving invitation for them to partake of the eternally satisfying bread of life instead of the temporal bread of this world. But when Jesus spoke to the religious leaders, his tone changed from love and invitation to rebuke and separation. To the, to the people in the world, he was like, come on in. Come on into my father's kingdom. That was his whole like initial speech on the Mount of Olives, right? The Sermon on the Mount. He's like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. Come on in, poor. Come on in, sinner. It's very welcoming. It's an invitation. But to the religious leaders, he's like, get out. Get out. You do not belong here. You're poisoning what my father's trying to do. There was a divide. There's a line in the sand with the people of the world who are sinning and the religious leaders inside the church who are lying to people and distorting the word and character of God. He says to them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are whitewashed tombs. Jesus didn't say it like this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, like in the movies. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. He says in Matthew 12, you brood of vipers, he calls them. How can you who are evil say anything good? In other words, you group of people who with your words are like a poison of a snake, destroying people's lives. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by the wor your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Notice that he uses the word, phrase empty words. For their empty words, they will have to give an account. Same phrase that Paul used in our passage today. Let nobody deceive you with empty words. For the wrath of God is on these people. He's not talking about people out there. He's talking about these ones. And he talks about the wrath of God being on them. Jesus didn't have harsh words for lost people. Jesus had harsh words for people who spoke one way in the church and lived another, for the religious people who tried to use religion and God and God's word to justify and cover up their thorn-bearing lives. Jesus was actually called the friend of sinners because of the way that he interacted with sinners. The point is this. The command of Scripture is not that we disassociate with bad company in the world. It is that we disassociate with bad company in the church. Now, that doesn't mean that we disassociate with all company in the church. There's actually some really good company in the church. In fact, maybe most of the church is good company. But this does mean that we don't let someone's church attendance or commitment to going to church qualify them as good or bad company. Church attendance is not the qualifier. Religious jargon is not the qualifier. Saying you're a Christian is not the qualifier. The fruit of one's life is what qualifies them. That is how we judge the character of people. You don't judge my character because of the things I say. 
You judge the fruit of my life. Look at my wake. And you judge me according to that. The sad reality is that many of us in this room have made some of the greatest mistakes or compromises as a direct result of being influenced by people who wave that Jesus flag. Because our guard is down with people like that. We're like, well, they're in the church. They've been around for a long time. Certainly, they're not like going to lie on purpose. Certainly, if they're, if they're doing that, it must be okay. I mean, they're always talking about God. It's got to be okay, right? Our guard is down with people like that. And this is why sin in the church is so dangerous and more dangerous than sin outside of the church because our guard is down with people who have this spiritual facade over everything that they do. But it's also dangerous in the church because the church is a close-knit environment and community. And in close-knit communities and environments, that's where stuff like sin can grow. Let me say it again. Sin within the church is so dangerous because it has a tight-knit environment of community to grow in. You know what I mean? It's easier to avoid something when you're not in close proximity to it. If you've been following the coronavirus, my wife loves science. So like every morning she like wakes up, reads the news. She never reads the news. She's just like reading. She's like, Dom, can you believe how the coronavirus is eating away at people's lungs? I'm like, yo, hey, I'm trying to drink my coffee. Stop it. The coronavirus, it's killed 1,400 people. It's affected 60,000 lives. That's four times more than Brian mentioned two weeks ago, just in the span of two weeks. Do you know where viruses spread quickest and most effectively in tight-knit community. China, where this is all going down, is one of the most densely populated countries in the world. Viruses thrive in community. In fact, if you isolate a virus from its community, then you protect the community from its effects. It's like the leaven that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 16 when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious leaders. Have you ever used leaven or yeast? Same thing. Have you ever seen how it works? It's the stuff that makes bread puff out or baked goods rise, right? We have this really simple recipe. You can have this for free. Really simple recipe for French bread. Four ingredients. Four cups of flour. That's a lot of flour. Two cups of water. One tablespoon of salt. One tablespoon of yeast. One tablespoon of yeast makes the whole thing Rise. One tablespoon influences, if you will, everything that it touches. You've heard the saying, a little leaven leavens the whole up from Galatians 5. When a virus enters the community of the church, it will spread like yeast if not dealt with. Paul saw a virus in the church in Corinth and had to deal with it. Saw a lot of them. In fact, it's mostly why the reason he wrote his first letter to them. And he uses this metaphor of yeast. Check this out. 1 Corinthians 5. It'll be on the screen. He says, I can hardly believe the report about sexual immorality going on among you. He's talking to the church. This is something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmom. He's having an affair with his stepmom. You should be mourning in sorrow and shame. I'll wait. Thanks. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. You should remove this man from your fellowship. 
In the name of the Lord Jesus, you must call a meeting of the church. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day of the Lord's return. In other words, throw this man out of your church and pray to God that he comes to his senses and repents and turns back to Jesus. He goes on, he says, don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spread through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. Listen, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You'd actually have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant, because they're everywhere, right? that's, that's, the, that's the world, it's the culture of the world. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worship idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It is not my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. The person living in... Habitual sin is like yeast, and they must be removed, or they're going to affect the entire body. Like a virus in your body, God will not tolerate habitual immorality within his church. You ever wonder why God is so gnarly in the Old Testament? Because that's how he deals with sin. You ever wonder why the cross, the crucifixion, the beating of Jesus was so brutal? Because that is the effects and the punishment for sin. Man, God hates, he hates sin. And he hates it because he knows how it destroys everyone who comes in contact with it. Like a deadly virus, untreated and unrepented of, sin will destroy its host and everyone in proximity. It's like if one of my kids gets gangrene on their foot, in my love, I will cut off their foot in order to save their life. That's why God deals with sin, how he deals with sin. That's why God gives us instructions in his word of how to deal with sin within the church. He's like, I will cut off a foot to save my people. That's why it's so gnarly, it's so heavy. In God's love, he will remove anything and anyone that is destroying us individually or corporately. Let me say it again. In God's love, he will remove anything and anyone that is destroying us individually or corporately. But the enemy has a different plan. It's not like God's good plan. His good plan of love. I think it's interesting that in Romans 16, that passage we just um, read a few minutes ago, at the end of it, Paul mentions Satan. He's like, God will crush Satan under your feet, which is such a cool way to say it. But he mentions, he like ties in Satan to this person of immorality who needs to not be in the church, because Satan plays a part in this kind of thing when it happens in the church. While it is God's plan to eradicate sin from our midst so that we can live and thrive, it is Satan's plan to use people's sin in our midst to kill us, steal from us, and destroy us. Christian, you represent everything that the devil hates. 
when you live a life of faith and obedience and worship, it spits in the face of Satan. He doesn't like us. He doesn't have authority over us, but he'll do what he can to take us down. And if he can't get you from without, he'll try to get you from within. Tim Chaddock from Reality London writes about this when he says in his book, The Truth About Lies. And he says, we are well aware that churches, if you don't know, Tim's from Reality London, which is fun. It's such a good quote. He says, we are well aware that churches and other religious organizations are capable of deceit and manipulation. After all, people make films about it and TV specials exposing it. And yet it seems unthinkable that it would happen in our church community and in our worship services. How could it go wrong? After all, there might be Bibles in the room, scriptures on the walls, Christian bracelets on people's wrists, and worship songs being sung. How could any evil be present in a religious gathering? It seems so unlikely until we remember that Jesus cast out demons not only on the outskirts of cities, but also in the synagogues. Apparently, Satan goes to church too. Satan can't bring our demise from without, then he will do it from within. And if he can, he will use people to accomplish it. Which means that because someone says they're a Christian or goes to church, that may or may not mean anything. How do we know they're legit then? You look at their fruit. Fig fig trees don't bear thorns. They bear figs. So I end with this. You're going to be influenced by someone right? Namely, whoever you spend the most time with. Probably not your poodle. If you listen to that podcast or that talk radio show long enough, you're going to start to think like the people on the show. You will be influenced. The question is, who are you being influenced by? You should have relationships with non-believers, but who is influencing who? And the temptation within the church is to surround ourselves with a swarm of godly people. And we should. We should do that. That's kingdom family, right? This is why we have 250 people in community groups. This is right, man. That's family. But our goal is to not be like the godly people around us. Our goal is to be like Jesus. I love you. You remind me of Jesus. But I don't want to be like you. I want to be like Jesus. And we are influenced by Jesus when we give ourselves, I'm sorry, when we give him the space in our lives to be who he is. We give him the space to do what he wants to do. And we give him the space to say what he wants to say. Which is exactly what we're going to do right now in this second set. I want to be influenced by Jesus. And I have the worship team come up. I don't want to be poisoned by the toxic, carnal culture of people who call themselves Christians. And you are under no obligation, church, to try to rescue these people. That's not your job, man. Your job is actually to disassociate with them and entrust them into God's maybe gnarly plan. And maybe they will come to their senses and come back to Jesus. Your job is to keep your eyes on Jesus. That's your job. It's not your responsibility. You can let go of that responsibility. As we worship right now, we can turn off the lights, Jeremy. You guys can start playing if you want. As we worship right now, church, um, 
There's something powerful that happens when we sing truth. When we sing the truth of these songs, it actually has a way of cutting through the lies. When we exalt Jesus, it actually has a way of driving out demonic forces. Apparently, Satan goes to church too. I'll tell you what, man, Satan cringes when you worship, though. He doesn't like to hang around. He doesn't like to hang around when you start worshiping. That's Bible right there. So let us turn our eyes to him. Let us fix our gaze upon him. Let the image of Jesus fill our minds and our vision today as we worship. And as we do, lives will crumble. The complexity of that relationship you're thinking of right now is like, gosh, I'm looking at the fruit of their life. I just, I think I need to disassociate with them. That's so hard though, God, because I have love. He's like, I have love too. I have love too. And in my love, man, I discipline. I chastise those that I love. You got to trust me with that, he says. It's not your responsibility. The prayer team is going to be up on the right and left. You guys can stand up and go over there right now if you want. Uh, they would love to pray for you any, for anything regarding this or anything else. And if you're here today and you are on the verge of being that person who's justifying sin and influencing others, you see, I mean, it would take a miracle, but you're starting to see, oh, wow, I think I'm going to be like that poison, like that virus. Today's the day that you repent. Today's the day that you repent and turn to Jesus, ask him to have mercy on you. If you're here today and you're just visiting church, you were hoping for a nice, feel-good sermon. I'm sorry. But I hope this demonstrates to you how much God loves his people. This is how much God loves his people. Sin was not God's plan. God doesn't enjoy this. Sin came in and separated us from him. Sin is the enemy. And in your sin, you are separated from God. But that's why he sent Jesus to come and pay the penalty for your sins. Your sin could be taken away and you could be reconciled back to a loving relationship with him. You don't even know, but he's your father. You're an orphan. He wants to bring you into his family today. And all you need to do is you need to turn to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Wash me clean. Here's my life. And he will come and live inside of you and make all things new. Today, let's worship. Communion elements are up front to remember what Jesus has done. The carpets are here for us to take postures of surrender and trust and praise before God. <laughs>